You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. We've heard a lot about the bad deeds of the big banks in the past six years or so, but we don't hear nearly often enough from the workers on the front lines at those banks. This week, we're joined by Khalid Taha, a personal banker at Wells Fargo in San Diego and an activist with the Committee for Better Banks, who tells us why he and other workers decided it was time for action. But first, the news. Call center workers put up with a lot. They're the first ones to deal with us when our cell phone service or cable gives out or when we've gotten overcharged. In addition to irate customers, though, some call center workers put up with sexual harassment, too. Last week for Dame Magazine, I spoke with Angela Aganis, an eight-year employee of T-Mobile's call center in Oakland, Maine. Appropriately, she termed her job a delicate art form that she was really good at. But when her new boss started to put his hands on her, that was another story. The coach, as they're called, was someone she'd been warned about before, but she was unsure at first if his attentions were really what they appeared to be. He'd offered to help her get a promotion, but when she pulled away from his hand on her, she told me he made comments that she perceived as threatening her job. She went to Human Resources, expecting them to handle it swiftly. They had made it very clear when she started the job that there was a strict no-touching policy. But instead, she said, she was asked to sign a forum that said that if she discussed her claim with anyone else in the call center, she could be fired. She signed the form, then resigned, and contacted the Communications Workers of America. They helped connect her with a lawyer and filed an NLRB complaint that was decided in her favor this August, requiring the company to stop using these forms. A T-Mobile spokesperson told me that they have changed their forms since the NLRB decision, but Aganis is going public anyway and has filed a lawsuit alleging that she was pushed out of her job for raising the complaint. CWA told me that since her story broke, they've heard from other workers at T-Mobile call centers with similar tales. If any of our listeners are call center workers, I would love to hear from you on this subject. You can email us at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org. In the past few weeks, there have been a few signs at the retail stores where we're invited to shop till we drop are becoming less of a place where workers work till they drop. There have been moves to drop the on-call scheduling system, which, as we've discussed previously on this podcast, means that basically your schedule is completely at the mercy of your boss in terms of setting your work hours, determining which days you work, and therefore determining how much money you make from week to week or day to day. This can easily throw your entire week into turmoil because you have no set schedule and can't really plan for anything and can't really deal with unforeseen events, whether it's a medical illness or sudden need for childcare, etc. So according to the Fair Work Week initiative, the number of workers who no longer work on the scheduling system has reached uh, more than 200,000 that we know of. And in addition to J. Crew, which was the latest outlet to join the bunch of retail outlets that have dropped on call, the companies that have reformed this practice include Urban Outfitters, Gap Incorporated, Bath and Body Works, Abercrombie and Fitch, and Victoria's Secret. This seems to be a direct response to an investigation by Attorney General Eric Schneiderman that sought to reveal how workers were being affected by these highly unstable, highly stressful shift systems. Funny how that works. J. Crew has, of course, stated in the past that stores uh, use on-call scheduling to ensure a steadier workflow and a more stable operation. 
um, suggesting, of course, that uh, you know reforming this practice will lead to some sort of managerial pressure. Workers, of course, argue that the constant volatility in their scheduling leads to high turnover, extreme social instability in their lives, as well as poor performance for the corporation. Oh, and it also makes your life a living hell. One bright spot is that regulators are trying to fix this on a more systemic level. For example, San Francisco is starting to implement its Retail Workers' Bill of Rights. It's landmark legislation that seeks to build in safeguards so workers are protected when shifts are, for instance, suddenly canceled, and to ensure that they are informed at least two weeks ahead of time about their schedules. And to clarify, on-call scheduling is just one draconian scheduling practice that needs to be reformed. Many workers still suffer inflexible and unstable schedules in other ways. For instance, we know that nationwide, about two-thirds of food service workers, over half of retail workers, and about 40% of janitors and house cleaners have at most one week's notice of their schedules. So 200,000-plus retail workers moving closer to regular stable hours is one small step forward, but it reflects just one small reform in a gigantic universe of unstable and unfair scheduling practices, and it affects just a sliver of the entire workforce that is subjected to these scheduling systems. On the other hand, it does reflect growing public pressure for fair scheduling practices at work. Bernie Sanders showed up in a rather unlikely place for a presidential candidate this past week, on the picket line with Verizon workers in New York City. Outside of a Verizon wireless store, where the workers were calling on the company to negotiate a fair contract with its workers and demanding the reinstatement of workers, the union, once again CWA, as well as the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, says have been fired for union activity. They have been in negotiations for a year, and former CWA president Larry Cohen is a Sanders advisor, which may have something to do with why Bernie showed up. Nevertheless, I have not heard of Hillary Clinton arriving on a picket line, though maybe she will now, or any other candidate for a while. Dave Jameson, who wrote about this for the Huffington Post, said the Sanders camp reckoned the last time a presidential candidate from one of the big two parties did so was Jesse Jackson way back in 1988. I was 10 years away from being old enough to vote at that time. Sanders' appearance comes as more unions have announced their endorsement of Hillary Clinton, and more rank-and-file workers have taken to social media to complain that they were not consulted in said endorsement. To be fair, it's likely that workers for a long time have disagreed with their union's choice of endorsement, and the rise of Twitter and Facebook may have just given them an easier platform on which to voice that disagreement. But as Sanders has risen in the polls, the argument that endorsing Clinton is simply siding with the inevitable winner is ringing more and more hollow. So let us know if you have a picket line that you would like a presidential candidate to come to. Uh, Tweet at us at hashtag belabored. You might have been happy to hear that the Obama administration is planning to reduce the time students spend taking tests in the K-12 school system. And this is an obvious response to the growing resistance to standardized testing and high-stakes assessments that are consuming so much of school programming today. So far, so good. As we discussed with Megan Erickson on a recent episode of Belabored, the emphasis on test scores has crowded out vital programming in arts, humanities, and recreation, and has led to an overall narrowing of the curriculum. However, the Obama administration's latest move is basically just a drop in the bucket. 
Standardized testing remains one of the major labor issues facing teachers today because they are typically beholden to an overall culture of testing. It's not about the amount of time that a student spends sitting in a chair actually filling in Scantron bubbles. The main issue is that the overall school climate and the day-to-day curriculum are dramatically altered when everything is all about the test score. Teachers see their own professional assessments and job advancement prospects being dependent on these tests, and the tests themselves, meanwhile, are increasingly decried as arbitrary, biased, too narrow, and just downright boring, which leads to a lot of frustration all around, and that lasts throughout the school year. So now the Obama administration wants to ensure that standardized tests take up only 2% of a student's overall time over the course of their education. But the Network for Public Education, a coalition representing educators, community advocates, and parents, has criticized this plan as incredibly deceptive. Anthony Cody, head of the NPE, along with former education official Diane Ravitch, responded to the announcement by saying that limiting testing to 2% is merely, quote, a symbolic gesture that will have little impact so long as these tests are used for high-stakes purposes. That is, it won't change the incentive structure that drives classrooms to center their entire curriculum around a test that may only take a few hours out of the school year, but nonetheless hogs up all of class time in terms of preparation. And the coalition argues that more broadly, billions of taxpayer dollars have been wasted on high-stakes testing during the Bush-Obama years, and their solution to this is not to set another arbitrary statistical limit, but rather to demand a complete end to high stakes tests that are used to sort, select, punish, and rank students, educators, and schools. Meanwhile, they are calling for democratically governed schools that are run by the communities that they serve instead of the usual test and punish system that has led to the threat of closure looming over so many public schools and communities nationwide. And regardless of how much time is spent on testing specifically, the common core standards, when they're not matched up with assessment methods and curricular standards and school resources, are going to lead to botched standards of progress all over. Again, which means teachers' jobs and students' futures are held to perhaps impossible standards. Main Street occupied Wall Street for a brief glorious moment in Los Angeles last week when retail bank workers occupied the lobbies of Wells Fargo and Bank of America to demand reforms to the financial industry, representing the Committee for Better Banks, a national campaign that's mobilizing frontline bank workers together with community and labor groups to demand fair terms for the customers and for the workforce. At Wells Fargo, workers say that they're being pressured to build customers every day and it's undermining both their job security and the financial security of the families and neighborhoods that they serve. So far, Wells Fargo has resisted criticism of these unethical practices, but I spoke with Khalid Taha, a personal banker with Wells Fargo in San Diego, about why he protested and how he thinks banks can work better for communities. Tell me what you do at Wells Fargo and what motivated you to participate in this campaign. I'm a personal banker at Wells Fargo. I work at the retail store, you know, at the at the bank, the actual branch. My job is customer service uh, plus, you know, sales for the bank, like opening new accounts for new customers and existing customers, maintain loans, and uh, also do referral to specialists, like, for example, mortgage specialists, 
insurance specialists, etc., etc., etc. So te- technically, you know, it's it's more like on the sales base, but plus the customer service base. You know, if the customer came into a store and needs, for example, a statement or they need to have an issue with their account, so I could, you know, I could help them contact with the right specialist. Uh, why did I join the uh, committee for better banks? I believe there's something wrong or something unfair is happening in our work environment. And committee for better banks was the first uh, committee that opened their doors for bank workers. You know, you never hear anybody, you know, really, um, you know, demanding for bank worker rights, <laughs> except committee for banks now, you know, in the, um, nationwide. So that's why I joined the uh, the uh, committee. And what was it about your workplace that made you want to take some action? What do you think needs to change? I think the first thing I wanted to change is the sales quota. It's being really forced so hard on employees, you know. Um, we can only work, you know, five days a week and we have a sales quota that Maybe you need to work like seven days a week in order for you to need it. You know, most of our time we spend it, we do customer service. And, um, you know, customers just demand a lot of your time when they have an issue with their, with their, uh, with your banking products. And at the same time, we have to meet our sales quota, which is, you know, which is acceptable because I understand it's, uh, it's a profit company. It's not a nonprofit. You know, they want, by the end of the day, they need to see how much revenue that they got. Uh, it's just, it's unreasonable. Uh, you know, we had certain time of the year that we have to sell 20, over 20 products a day. And if we don't meet this 20 products a day, um, that's mean you are in, uh, in, you know, you're in danger of losing your job or, you know, or have a handwritten warning or et cetera, et cetera, before you lose your job. So, I believe it's unreasonable. A lot of uh, bank workers are just leaving their jobs because of that. Um, some of them left on stress leave, like myself. You know, I had to leave on stress leave because I couldn't just do it anymore. Also, I was I was really blessed with my self goals. I was really number one in my in my in my area, but that took a lot from me. I didn't make it the easy way. Some bank workers they just have to um, go and unethically, you know you know, selling double accounts to customers. Um, don't like, you know, I don't know, I don't know if you heard about the, the, uh, the lawsuit in Los Angeles, you know, that the, um, the district attorney is suing Wells Fargo over unethical practices. And um, these unethical practices was happening in Berryfield, you know, like on my level. And I don't blame the bank workers because the bank workers were pushed their, over their limits, you know, to meet their goals and with approval from their management. Of course, you know, just just to keep their jobs, you know, they want a paycheck by the end of the day, by the end of the month, I'm sorry, to pay the rent. They're just humans. There was so much pressure and reasonable pressure um, from the sales quota. One other part why I joined the Committee for Banks, I think we need a fair share. We make millions of dollars. Uh, I remember one, of, one quarter I brought almost, you know, a million dollar loan to Wells Fargo uh, on, you know, plus other service that I sold. And um, what did I get? I got nothing. I just get my regular paycheck. Um, you know, most of our bank tellers, which is one, you know, one step um, 
underneath the bank, personal banker. They are living on public assistance because they are simply making minimum wages or a little bit over the minimum wages. In, a, in an industry that make you know, it's multi-billion a year, I believe we need a little bit more on our wages, a little bit more on, on our benefits. Uh, we need to feel secure. You know, We need to feel that this is my only job. I don't, I don't want to go after my work and do another job just to uh, just to meet my needs, you know, I want to have one job uh, and secure job that I could survive with it. And I could call it as a career, not just a job. And when you talk about the pressure to make sales, can you give an example of maybe a choice that you would make um, due to uh, the sales pressure? You know, when you're dealing with a customer, would it be like you uh, maybe steer them towards a more expensive product or you feel pressure to, you know, maybe give them some services or some products that they don't need? How does that play out? Yeah, due to confidentiality, you know, I cannot really uh, give specific examples, but I could just, you know, give you a general idea that personally, I meet my, I might, I meet my quarterly, quarterly uh, uh, goals, you know, for myself, and uh, there is one of these days that, you know, the 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 branch is really dry, nobody's coming into the to the branch, you know, everybody's busy. Uh, like for example, the prison day, we are open on the prison day, and people think that we have. You know, we have we closed the the bank because all other banks are closing, but Wells Fargo is opening. So technically, on, in this kind of days, you don't really make any sales, and um, your manager's on the top of your head, like how much do you sell? How much do you sell? How much do you sell? Like, uh, do something, make calls, make you know, go stage calls, do something. Like, I know, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I can't just you know knock on the wall and you know take customers out of middle of nowhere. You know, like uh, we know that we it's a dry day. You know. We try our best. We make schedules. You know, we make appointments for our customers. But at the end of the day, it's it's just like Walmart. You know, people walk in to get their products. Just same thing with banking. You know, it's just like an it's an open store that when people walk into your store, you could you could start conversation for sales. Uh, one day I was working on Saturday, and Saturday we close our branch at four o'clock, and um, I have a customer that she needs to put a stop payment on a cashier check, and uh, you know, putting stop payment or cashier check is a process that could take like your whole day. And it did. You know, this customer came into the branch when they opened. I was the lucky one to get this customer. I was, you know, able to perform my, my service to her. And by the time we were done, the branch was closing. The, you know, it was, or, it was almost 4 o'clock. And uh, my manager came to me, hey, Khalid, how much did you sell today? Um, sorry, Mr. Manager, I, I didn't sell today because I was doing this service the whole day, you know, putting uh, a stop payment on a cashier, on a, on a cashier check. And he said, like, well, it's your fault because you could sell something to this customer. I thought, it's impossible to sell anything to this customer for many reasons. First, she's fully profiled with us. She's been with us for a long time. She had all our products, you know, she had a loan with us. She had a, her car loan, her, her banking account, her checking account, even her kid account she has with us you know so technically there's no other opportunities i looked around uh, i talked with her about certain products plus you know the, the customer was already frustrated about the lost check and you know she wasn't really that open to hear about any other uh, sales opportunities and my manager just simply count this day against me because it's a you know it's a business day yes yes it's it's a it's maybe a weekend but it's considered a business day for 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 our job requirement 
And, um, you know, he counted that I spent the whole day without working. <laughs> so technically, if you don't sell, you don't work. Yeah, well, I mean, and, you know, just say uh, on a typical day when there's a lot of pressure to make a sale or when you've gotten, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, no sales days, um, would a worker then try to give the hard sell to someone that they knew really didn't need the loan or maybe knew, you know, maybe wouldn't be, would have trouble paying it back or something like that? Would there be pressure to do that kind of unethical thing? Yes, ma'am. You know, you will be surprised if you hear stories from other bank workers, you know. Um, sometimes bankers, I, I've, I've seen bankers, you know, in my, my job, they are opening accounts without the customer knowledge. Um, missing signatures. Um, sometimes customers come to me like, how come I was checking online and I have extra account? How come I'm checking online and I have a credit card? I never request a credit card. There is so much pressure that drives the bankers crazy. And sometimes even tellers, because tellers are required uh, to make sales also. And the company will always claim that, no, this is not happening because our policy is you meet your goals quarterly. But when you come to the truth, you know, your manager does not want you to meet it quarterly. Your management wants you to meet it daily, on a daily basis. And if one day you don't sell or you don't, do, you don't meet your sales goals, that means you are really on the blacklist of your management. One time my manager made me hate my job. <laughs> like I didn't want to go to my job like the other day because, you know, like I didn't sell for this one day and I was like number one in my area, you know. So... Yes, you know, sometimes the, the management practices drive you crazy. And when you talk, when you're trying to open door and talk to the upper management, they will say, well, they just want to make sure that by the end of the quarter, you're not behind. You know, they justify that. They justify, they, they give you reasons. They don't listen to the serious issue. They just, you know, they have always a defense ready. They have always something to say. Like I tried my HR, I talked to an advisor with HR, and they always, you know, they always have have a statement ready that they will tell it to you. Yeah. <laughs> Looks like everyone's uh, yeah. <laughs> everyone's everyone's giving bad advice over at your uh, financial services. Company. Exactly. You know, it's just like this is a statement like I'm like I'm pretty sure like like when I call my one time I called my HR because you know I was like really frustrated with my management and like I was expecting the statement that you know my my HR advisor will tell me and she did really tell me what exactly I was thinking. Yeah. Um what you're describing with the pressure for sales, it sounds like, you know, a sales floor where like a used car salesman makes commission off of a car or something. But are you compensated just work, by the actually. hour? There's no bonus or anything like that? There is, um, a, you know, a complimentary bonus, but it's really, you know, um, like, for you know, it's I'm, I'm relying on my paycheck. I don't really rely on my bonuses. There is a quarterly bonuses and um, it's a matrix that you have to meet, you know. You have to meet the service part and you have to meet the sales part. And, uh, you know, if, for example, the service part, what I mean is the surveys that goes to the customers after they come to the branch. And um, you have to be on a certain level to get compensated. So, and this surveys, they used to be individual, you know, but now it's not individual. Now the whole, the whole branch is penalized by this survey. So if you do well and if you provide a great customer service and you'll, your coworker didn't provide great customer service and they, they, get, they get a bad survey, everybody is penalized for that because they think it's, you know, it's the management fault and the whole store fault. So you have to meet certain metrics. It's pretty complicated. For me, I think it's very complicated. 
for two quarters, I was able to, to meet them, but none of my coworkers in my branch were able to meet their quota. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't sound like there's much incentive there for you know when. No, it, it is not. It is not. You know, after three months, you're selling. You're you're dealing with millions of dollars of of you know of loans and 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 accounts and everything. You get like like five hundred or four hundred dollar every like three months. So the only reason we meet our quota is to keep our jobs. You know, that's the only way we think about it. We just need to do it because we need to to keep our job. We don't really care about the incentive because incentive is really really nothing. You know. Yeah, yeah. Plus, you know, there's, I think, 45% taxes on Saudi or something like that. Yeah, you're like... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, no complaint about taxes because it's going for good, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, at least, at least the taxes are going to some, <laughs> just to a, to a public good. Um, so, and um, when you talk about your fair share, I mean, can you talk about the kinds of uh, wages that people in your, um, you know, that you and your coworkers are earning right now, and has that changed over time? Um, or do you feel like things are tighter now, you know, since the recession? Or, you know, how has the overall level of compensation and economic security felt? I've been only working two years with the bank, so I'm not sure what happened before me, you know, during the recession. Um, it is, I, you know, when you think about it, technically it's not getting tighter because they give you a raise every year, probably like a couple cents in an hour more, like probably eight or 10 cents. But if you come like on the, on the real world, like this 10 cents an hour, you know, it doesn't make any changes, especially as we live in, like, for example, I live in California, Southern California and Southern California is, is like, I think the most expensive part in, 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 in the, you know, in the nation. Um, in my city, San Diego, if you want two-bedroom apartments, and I'm talking about, you know, just a convenience two-bedroom apartment. I'm not talking about something fancy. You're paying, like, at least uh, between 1800 to 2500 a month. And it depends on when you live in the city, you know, if you live in a good neighborhood or a bad neighborhood. I'm not talking fancy. I'm just talking, you know, convenience. So, you know, by the end of the day, really, you cannot even afford having your own apartment. You always have to look for a roommate. Uh, I live with my parents, you know, they are, my parents are my roommates. Um, and a lot of people, they either have, you know, their partners working or they're living with roommates. For tellers, most of them live on public assistance, you know. Uh, when it comes to their school, when it comes to food stamps, when it comes to medical, most of them rely on, on uh, public assistance. Uh, because the, the, their wages and their hours are pretty low compared to the markets here, because the market here is pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. You talked about um, these banks making these huge profits and none of that really um, you know, trickling down to the workers. Um, often what we hear about Wall Street is that uh, it's full, thrown by a bunch of you know, greedy, greedy bankers, actually. Um, what do you, what would you like people to know about the banking industry, especially the level of the banking industry that you work at, which is, you know, retail and, and consumer banking? You know, I just want people to look at bank workers just like the same way they look at fast food, fast food workers because we're no, we're no better than them. We're just wearing suits. That's the only difference. Um, we're wearing suits, but we are getting, um, you know, we're getting really low wages. Um, I'm not saying we're getting $7 per hour, but we're not getting, that, um, you know, a lot more than $7 per hour. We're getting a lot, couple dollars more. And when you look at bank workers, most of bank workers on the retail level, they are tellers. And 
tell us in, in, in Southern California, they make between 10 or actually nine. They start, some of them start with nine to 15 maximum. They don't make more than that. And we are bankers. We are just, we just have a couple dollars more than we make a couple dollars more than, you know, more than the, what they tell us are making. So we are really, I don't, I really want the consumer to look at us as a fast, fast food workers. We're no better than them. We're no better than the stores workers, you know, people work at Walmart and Vons, and maybe people work at Vons are better because they have unions <laughs> to get their back. So, you know, technically we're just we're just regular labor wearing suits. About the people in Wall Street, we have, you know, we have no clue who are, who is these people. I would say maybe the CFOs of our company is one of the bankers of, of Wall Street, maybe you know, or the big shot. We call them big shots, but who are they? We have no idea. But we're completely different than them. Maybe ourselves affect them, affect their Wall Street, you know, stocks. You know, when we sell too much, their stocks goes up. When we sell, when we don't sell, their stocks goes down. But most of bank workers, they don't even understand this equation. And people uh, these days, I mean, they they think of banks. Everything that has to do with banks is maybe unethical, or, <laughs> or they just are sick of Wall Street, and they, you know, they think banks are evil. Um, but the type of banking that you do, can you talk about like what you like about your job at its best? You know, not not when you're not when you're being made miserable by your uh, by your supervisor, <laughs> but um, what makes you enjoy being an everyday banker at the at the retail level? I'm a social person. I like to talk. I like to meet new people. And really, this this job is fulfilling this this need. You know, um, I'm not the kind of person that could behind this desk and do paperwork the whole day. Now I need to meet the new people all the time. I need to hear new stories. And, um, you know, it's it given me, a, you know, an experience that's worth really millions uh, that you cannot get it in other industries. Uh, and I think that's that's the most thing that I enjoy in my job. Beside the pay, beside everything, you know, that it's bad, there's always a, a good part of it. And um, I love what I'm doing. You know, I love being in the financial industry. I just think the financial industry is not treating me well. That's that's my concern, you know. Uh, but the type of job I'm doing, you know, I love it, and I'm, you know, there's a lot of people who also love their jobs, and they've been there for years. I just don't think we are treated fairly. We're underpaid, plus we are insecure in our job because we might lose our job at any time, with no notice. Um, the company could fire you for any reason, and they sign you for this paperwork when you get hired. You know, Wells Fargo has the right to, you know, to terminate you with or without notice, with or without reason. Um, and that's what keeps us, you know, in fear, especially when we hear about lawsuits like the one happened in L.A., you know, because we know that retail jobs will be lost in this case because they always blame us. They always blame the the entry-level jobs. They don't really think about it that it's their mistakes because they make this policy. <laughs> you know, they know they are, they always think it's the labor fault, you know. And we, I understand this is the capitalism system, you know, and that's how that's been always like that. What are you hoping to change with this campaign? Um, there's a set of demands for, you know, an end to the sales quotas and things like that. Um, what are you hoping to see from the corporate level uh, in terms of policy change or even in terms of public policy or the law, how banks are regulated? It's it's really a big dream to see banks regulated, you know, by law, because um, also we don't really have that much hopes because, you know, they own this lobbies and they pay a lot for this. So <laughs> there's a small hope on the government level 
but yes, I hope that they listen to us. Um, I mean, I don't really want to always take off and go and demonstrate in, in other branches, you know, just in order for my voice to reach the management. No, I want the management to listen to me. I want them, I want them to do meetings just to listen to us, not to tell us what to do. We are really tired of just doing what they are telling us to do. We want them to listen. We are a power, you know, labor are power. We need to use this power. We want to use it. I hope that also other bank workers will speak up for their rights. I don't want people just to be in fear of, oh, if I speak up, I might lose my job. Well, you will lose your job anyway if you, you know, if you speak up or if you don't. So why don't you just try? That's what I'm hoping. You know, people speak out more and management listen more. I can only hope. <laughs> in your workplace, um, how, how would you like things to change so that workers do have more of a voice um, in the day-to-day operations of the bank? Would that be like... It makes it uh, they make it easier for you to raise complaints um, about bad practices or uh, consult with you on different goals for the organization or, or how would you like to be able to have more of a voice at work? Yeah, um, I would say all of the above. <laughs> you know, all of the above. Really, um, I want them to consult me when they are writing their policies. I want them to consult me when they are setting sales goals. I want them to consult me. When I'm saying me, I mean the, the the whole team about everything that's regarding my job because I'm not a robot that they're telling me what to do. I'm a human. I have I have a critical thinking skills. I have a good background also. I have a good experience also. The people who are making decisions, they're not better than me. You know, they're just in higher level than me and they have because they have more money and that doesn't give them the right to to make the decision on my, my, on my behalf. I want them to listen to me. I want them to share their decisions with me, not just tell me what to do. Because tell me what to do, that doesn't make me perfect at my job. So, yes, I want them to listen. I want them to involve all the bankers and decision makers, and especially when it comes to sales goals. And so, for instance, with the sales goal, you could tell them like, you know, hey, um, you know, business has been really slow lately. There's no way this this sales goal is unrealistic, that kind of thing. Or maybe the economy is really bad and no one wants to buy anything. So mm-hmm. you can't pressure them. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Including these, you know, including these rainy days also, you know, I mean, uh, there has to be a way to do it. Uh, I just don't want the company always to put the blame on us. That's the entry level. I want them to think that maybe it's you guys, not only us. Uh, maybe it's the economy. I understand when there is no sales at all, they will let us go because, you know, it's a business plan of the day. But secure us more. Share with us more our decisions. And give give more also. <laughs> yeah. Are you hoping that maybe bank workers can uh, look towards unions to um, help them achieve some of those goals? I mean, not necessarily, you know, immediately at your workplace, but just in general? I don't see that anytime soon for many reasons. People are coming from different backgrounds. Uh, People are in fear to speak out. Uh, There is no really union uh, culture that we have, um, especially in California, you know. And people, they don't think in union powers anymore like before. Also, it's, it's it's wrong really to think like that. But I could see that as a long-term goal. I, I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, but yes, it's going to be in the future. I, I believe that people will get together more and more because they are just fed up with, with, uh, with the company policies. Of course, always banks will make their best to destroy any, any plan for unions, but that doesn't mean they will win. 
Like, for example, they always may want to make sure that we don't take our breaks at the same time, and they justify it, you know, for business needs and whatever. They always promise, you know, false promises that you're going to get promoted tomorrow, and of course, not all bankers will get promoted to management. <laughs> uh, there's always termination happening, you know, there's always uh, changing the policy, change the system. They always may want to make you keep you busy, you know, so they make it harder for you to get together and, and talk. But that's, I, I don't I don't see that as a permanent barrier. You know, one day I see bank workers, they will get together and they will unionize, uh, whether the bank like it or not. Um, hopefully that'll happen, uh, you know, before the next inevitable financial crisis. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so, you know. you know. At least you guys yeah, will be better you, prepared you know, next time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we never know. Yeah. <laughs> we never know. I, I know that Wells Fargo let a lot of people go during the recession. Um, but again, this is not a this is not a reliable data that I'm telling you. It's just I just heard the stories from people. Uh, but I see people that kept their jobs also. So it's it's all depends. You know, you never know what's what's behind the scenes. If you really think about it, the financial industry is the least industry that got harmed by uh, by the recession. You know, because they got immediate aid from the government. I remember at Bush time, he gave him like a loans or something like that. So they will always have plans to survive. That was Khalid Taha, a personal banker at Wells Fargo in San Diego and an activist with the Committee for Better Banks. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I had written that. Historian Bethany Morton is responsible for one of the most ARG-worthy books I've read on labor history, To Serve God in Walmart. My understanding of how Walmart works and the entire service economy has been shaped by her writing. So naturally, when I read her piece at Pacific Standard as part of their Future of Work series, I ARG'd quite a lot. Her piece is titled The Rise and Fall of the Job, and she details what's happened to the kind of job that once Americans or certain Americans took for granted, the full-time, with-benefits, long-term position that, if not inherently pleasing, at least paid enough for maybe a house in the suburbs and a vacation once a year. She goes through the history of the job, which she notes is a relatively recent social contrivance, elevated from what Samuel Johnson called in 1755, quote, a low, mean, lucrative, busy affair, petty, piddling work. Some of us might still consider our jobs that, but since then we've come to think of jobs as some holy grail for which we ought to be grateful, even more so as they become less common and harder to get, not to mention worse paid and with longer hours. In addition to being an excellent historian, Morton is just a lovely prose stylist, so I feel like the best thing I can do for you is read you a little bit of her piece. She writes, quote, on the other hand, the process of rebranding the job from sow's ear to silk purse demanded that other forms of work suffer deliberate exclusion. The Polish operative on the Detroit assembly line made concrete gains at the expense of the Filipino fruit packer in Fresno and the African-descended domestic worker in Atlanta. The same legislative genealogy split public work from the intimate labors of care, ensuring that the work of reproducing the workforce, the labor of feeding, healing, cleaning, rearing, and tending, would fall into a twilight zone between moral obligation and biological impulse. Valuing certain labor as a real job, she argues, meant devaluing all the other labor and contributed to the splitting apart of jobs into what we now think of as the gig economy, leaving us staring at a pretty bleak future. 
but she offers a hint of a better possibility. Since now the relatively well-off are facing similar working conditions to the domestic workers and others left out of the old economy's system of value, maybe, she suggests, we can get down to the business of valuing all necessary work, no matter who does it. And my ARG pick for this week is The Life and Death of an Amazon Warehouse Temp by Dave Jamison at Huffington Post. Jameson provides an intricate and tragic tale of a worker's demise in an Amazon warehouse. Tracing the events leading up to the death of Jeff Lockhart, he pieces together all the patterns in his life that eventually led his body to give out one day, seemingly randomly, but maybe not so randomly. But Jameson's story ultimately isn't about apportioning direct blame for the death itself, but rather describing the types of circumstances that drove him to take risks that no worker should ever have to take in order to feed his family. The article provides an intricate depiction of a dedicated father and of a family struggling through the recession and mass unemployment, but Jameson intersperses these scenes with a structural analysis of the temp labor force that consumes and ultimately entraps Lockhart in a system where workers' bodies are treated as interchangeable and disposable. You see, his temp staffing agency was key to Amazon's roaring success because it allowed for the outsourcing of management as well as all the overhead labor costs, including things like safety oversight. While Amazon can stay super lean as an organization and maximize profits, Lockhart's boss could squeeze him for every last drop of sweat because his job was designed to maximize productivity, not to provide workers with stability, allow them to develop skills, or work towards long-term careers. He writes, We are living in an era of maximum productivity. It's never been easier for employers to track the performance of workers and to discard those who don't meet their needs. This applies to employees at every level, from warehouse grunts to white-collar workers like those at Amazon headquarters, who are recently the subject of a much-discussed New York Times piece about the company's brutally competitive corporate culture. The difference is that people like Jeff don't have the option of moving to Google, Microsoft, or a tech startup eager to poach managers and engineers of Amazon on their resume. When it comes to low-wage positions, companies like Amazon are now able to precisely calibrate the size of its workforce to meet consumer demand week by week or even day by day. And he concludes by suggesting that the oppressive workplace climate on the corporate side of Amazon, it really affects workers at all levels of the organization, but those who are the most economically marginalized have the least ability to absorb those stresses and, of course, the least ability to resist that type of oppression. So we don't hear about those workers. We often may be shocked at the brutal competitive workplace culture that Amazon cultivates among its white-collar workforce, but buttressing the atmosphere of that stress on the corporate side is the deep anxiety that white-collar workers feel about how insecure they actually are economically, and perhaps they know deep down that they're but one step away from becoming just another Jeff Lockhart. Ultimately, Lockhart dies a pretty anonymous death in a warehouse aisle, It's later attributed to a sudden onset of a heart problem that apparently was not diagnosed before. The family is now trying to move on after receiving barely any compensation for Jeff's death, and they're suffering the cold resistance of both the staffing agency and Amazon in terms of taking any responsibility for what happens to Lockhart's family as they try to move on from their disaster. Toward the end, Jamison observes that Jeff's family is getting by mostly on Social Security survivor benefits, and the bank foreclosed on Jeff and his wife Dyke's home. 
and the kids have to split time between Daiki's rental and just parents' home nearby. And in the end, his wife reflects that she doesn't blame Amazon or the staffing agency Integrity for Jeff's death. Quote, what bothers her most is how expendable her husband seemed to be inside the warehouse system. She believes that had he not died as a second-class temp worker, his family might have been in a better position to sustain the loss. She says, just feeling like he wasn't human, like he was just a piece of paper. You know, they can dispose of you. It kind of hurt. The worst part of Lockhart's death is the fact that it went so unnoticed, that unless Jamison, the journalist, had randomly stumbled upon this man's records, there would be really no public trace that his death had ever taken place in that warehouse, despite Amazon's reputation for overworking its warehouse staffers. So we don't really know how many more Jeffs there are out there. We only know that he isn't the last and hopefully maybe next time more people will take notice. And that's all for this episode of Belabored. Catch us in another two weeks. And if you have any questions, comments, or story ideas for us, find us on Twitter at hashtag Belabored, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Halloween. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>